Well, good morning, Westridge. I want to apologize in advance, not for the content of my message, but for the presence of a cold. Uh, I'm on the tail end of a cold. It's my first one since COVID, and I think I'm dying, right? Uh, so I have no control over my cough or sneeze or any of that, so I've alerted the sound team. They'll block me, but just hang in there with me, if you will. Uh, we're in this new series, as Scott said this morning, called Unstoppable Joy, where we're digging into the book of Philippians. And Philippians is a short little four-chapter book in the New Testament that says more about having and living in joy than any other book in the New Testament does. Paul expresses the central idea of this series and of his book in uh, Philippians 4 when he says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, I'm confident that every one of us in the room has been in a place where we desperately needed joy. Some of us have stared down disease together. Maybe your ache for joy involves a traumatic injury or a bankruptcy or a foreclosure. It might be that you were handed divorce papers or you walked the painful road of a loved one's death. And maybe you feel imprisoned by desperation, by depression, and trapped by a cantankerous boss, or spouse, or child, or all three. Or maybe it's simply that you're in a fight to stay sober, and you're not sure how much longer you're going to make it. The struggles each of us face in life are very different, but nobody escapes this life unscathed. We know that's true because we see the scars when we look in the mirror. And we look, when we look deeply into our soul. And whether we picked the fight or the fight picked us, we have an important choice to make. What weapon will we choose to beat back sadness and despair? Will we choose cynicism? Or anger? Will we choose complaint? Control? Or will we default to our old faithful friends, denial and withdrawal? How will we fight for joy? Like most treasures we pursue in life, joy can be difficult to come by. And so as we begin this new series today, I just simply want to suggest in our time together this morning that we can choose to fight back with joy, even in the worst of times. But if we want that unstoppable joy... We're going to need courage. We're going to need a backbone. We're going to need endurance. And unfortunately, we might even need a crisis to launch us on the search for joy. So when you think of the word joy, what's the image that comes to mind for you? Is it a place or a person or a season? Sometimes we equate joy with somebody with what I would call a chirpy disposition. Or sometimes it's somebody that comes around and has this candy-coated emotion just all bubbly in the middle of your crisis. Or somebody that has this saccharine fantasy and tries to convince you just how much better your future is going to be because of the pain that you're in right now. The last thing I want around me when my world comes crashing in is those kind of people. Anybody with me? I'm going to assume because of the lack of response that you're sitting next to the person that... <laughs> oh, that kind of a person just seems out of touch with reality. 
All they really seem to do is irritate us rather than help us. And the Bible agrees. I had to search to find a verse that confirms my conviction, but I found one, just one, but that's enough. The Bible agrees with that perspective. People like that are not really helpful when life gets tough. Proverbs 25 says, like somebody who takes away your garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. You know what I want? I want that verse either cricketed or cross-stitched onto a gigantic pillow so that when a chirpy person comes around me, I can just smack them with it. I guess I'd, I'd probably need this to talk about joy, don't I? So first, what we have to understand in this series is this thing called joy. What is it, and how can we find it even in the worst of times? And so today we're just going to focus on two very simple ideas. Simple in concept, a little tougher to live out. And the first of those is this. Finding joy often requires us to make a defiant choice. A choice in the middle of, and sometimes in spite of, our circumstances. Now let's think about this letter that Paul wrote to a church in a city called Philippi. So Philippians was written to them. Let's think about where Paul was when he wrote this. He was in prison in Rome, even though he had done nothing wrong. The New Testament book of Acts tells us the story and how he got there. He started by raising money in all the churches in the Mediterranean to take to Jerusalem to help with a famine that was just decimating society around Jerusalem. It's a really good thing he was doing, right? So he gathered up all this money, and he took it himself personally to Jerusalem to distribute to the people who were in need. Because of his faith in Jesus, the religious leaders who were Jewish in Jerusalem arrested Paul and then fomented the mob to the point where they nearly killed Paul. Ever suffered for doing something good? Somehow it feels worse than we, when we can actually look at our suffering and tie it as a logical consequence to choices we've made. In this case, there wasn't much of a tie-in for Paul. The uproar in Jerusalem, the mob that the religious leaders had assembled, had to have been massive. Because when the Roman officials decided for Paul's safety, they had to move him from Jerusalem to Caesarea, he was taken there by this massive amount of soldiers. The Bible says it was 200 armed Roman soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 mounted troops. This conflict was a big deal, and apparently Paul was in imminent danger. So Paul was sent to Caesarea where he was going to be tried by the governor of the region whose name is Felix. And there he spent more than two years waiting in jail for his case to be heard. When in reality, the Bible says what was happening was Felix was waiting for a large bribe from Paul in order to hear his case. And so Paul just languished in prison for two years. And at the end of those two years, a new governor took over. Felix was out, and Portius Festa took over. Just a side note, I really do think if you're going to be a leader in the Roman Empire, you'd have thought a little bit more about your name. I don't think like Felix and Festus are names that engender a lot of respect. So just an insight into my twisted mind. So Portius Festus is now governing the region. 
And as a favor to the Jews, he makes this arrangement with the Jewish leaders that he's going to send Paul back to Jerusalem. He's going to send him there under the auspices of having a new trial when it's really already rigged, and they know that Paul is going to be killed by a mob. Two years this has been burning. So at this point, Paul takes a calculated risk. He literally asserts his right as a Roman citizen who's in a trial where he feels he's been wrong, and he, he blurts out to Festus, I appeal to Caesar, which meant he and all the documents were going to be bundled up and shipped off to Rome to await a trial before the emperor of Rome. Now, after consulting his attorneys, Festus agreed with his appeal and started getting things ready. In the time period, while Festus is getting Paul ready to be safely transported to Rome, Festus' boss King Agrippa comes to town, and he's heard about this odd court case that's been bubbling for a couple of years, and so he asks if he can hear Paul's case for himself, not necessarily to make a judgment. He's just curious. Paul makes this impassioned speech to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, and it's really just an amazing uh, description of his situation and how he got there. He starts by explaining his pedigree as a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the elite in the Jewish religious system. He talks about his own conversion to Christianity, and the story he tells is so compelling that Agrippa says, you've almost convinced me that I should become a Christian. At the end of it all, they send Paul out, and Agrippa consults with Festus and says, look, I mean, it's really kind of sad. This man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So after that, Paul was shipped off to Rome. His words in Philippians were written while he was imprisoned in Rome. And often, those cells weren't like what we would picture. They were literally a hole in the ground that had been dug and a plate put over the top of it where they dropped in your food whenever they thought of it. Paul is in prison in Rome waiting for his appeal to be heard. And as Paul writes this letter, his legal struggle has been going on for more than six years. Even the Roman officials agreed. Even the guards who were attached to him agreed. Paul hasn't done anything wrong, and yet he remained in prison with no hope of being released. And I wonder, how would I have handled that? Unjustly accused, thrown in a hole in the ground, stayed there for six years. If I'm honest, I would have probably chosen regret over joy. Why did I appeal to Caesar so quickly? If I had waited, Agrippa would have set me free. I would have focused in that time in solitude on how I blew it, the mistakes that I've made, I would have second-guessed everything. And I think a lot of us would do the same. So how, how was Paul handling all of this? What was he choosing? In horribly unjust circumstances, Paul defiantly chooses joy. He saw the good coming in spite of his personal suffering. Here's what he says in Philippians 1. I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here, now, having the context of what he's been through for six years, those words carry a little more weight, right? 
Everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, the elite special forces of the emperor himself. Everyone knows that I am in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Then he goes on to say, not everything is perfect about this, though. It's true that some are preaching out of jealousy or rivalry. There were pastors all over Rome trying to build up their church at Paul's expense, trying to line their wallets at Paul's expense. Paul says that doesn't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. And so I rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. Paul makes this defiant choice that isn't thrown out glibly from some cush mansion where he's living the high life under house arrest. He's in a prison cell. Paul has throughout his ministry for Jesus has experienced hardships and struggles that I pray none of us ever know. Multiple times he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was left for dead. And yet from his example, we can see that joy is always a defiant nevertheless. Paul says, I'm in prison. Other pastors are taking advantage of my situation. Nevertheless, I defiantly choose to focus on the good, the people who are coming to Christ. The second idea is simple as well. We most often find joy when we focus forward. I think one of the biggest enemies of joy in our life is when we fixate on our past and what's happened to us. Paul could have made that choice. I mean, he certainly had a sordid past. He freely talked about how he persecuted the church, literally playing the role of a bounty hunter for the religious elite in Jerusalem and going out and finding these Christ followers anywhere he could and having them tried in a mock trial and killed. That's who he was before Christ. But the book of Acts tells us that the first example of this was Paul who stood by, gave permission to the crowd, and then held their coats while the crowd stoned Stephen, one of the heroes of the early church. Paul's name evoked fear in Christians all over the Mediterranean because of his reputation. And yet, he's changed. That's not who he is anymore. But his past is still a part of his story. So how would you like to carry that guilt with you? Anytime you're Paul and you step in front of a church, knowing that the Christians in front of you are the very kind of people you had killed. How would you like to carry that kind of guilt when you write a letter to churches telling them what they ought to do and what they ought not to do? How would you like that guilt when you get in an argument with some of the founders of the church, which Paul often did? I think most of us know what it's like to carry guilt like that. We've accumulated enough broken relationships, broken promises, wounds, and washouts to last us a lifetime. And for most of us, it really doesn't matter the source of our guilt. 
the pain it inflicts can be intense. It can paralyze us. It can take the joy not only out of our present, but out of our future as well. But Paul says there's hope for us. And it lies in our choice to focus forward. doesn't mean we deny our past. It'll always be there. It will always be a part of us. But I believe that when God redeems us, He also redeems our story. And that is what enabled Paul to make bold statements like this in a letter to the church in Corinth where he said, look, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am today. God redeemed Paul's story and used him in amazing ways throughout the last years of his life. He planted dozens of churches all over the Mediterranean region. He led countless people to faith in Christ. He even, chained in a, guard, in a prison, chained to these elite special forces guys who worked six-hour shifts. Paul didn't see himself as a prisoner. He saw them as a prisoner. Right? How would you like to be an atheist or an agnostic and be chained to Paul who did nothing but talk for 24 hours a day about the Jesus he loved and the difference he could make in your life? Paul authored 12 of the books in the New Testament, many from this very prison cell. His training as a Pharisee wasn't wasted. God redeemed that and enabled Paul to tackle some of the most complex issues of faith as he wrote and taught about God. And in God's economy, none of Paul's story and none of our story is wasted. So I want to close this morning by sharing one of my favorite stories. It's by an author named Robert Fulgham. And he tells one of my favorite stories of how to find joy in the worst of times. He tells of a wedding, he says, was produced on an epic scale by an unhinged character known only as the mother of the bride. The logistics of the wedding included an 18-piece brass and wind ensemble. It included a gift registry that on it had requests for furniture for the couple's new home. And the registry was spread across the country. The wedding party consisted of 24 people, including multiple flower girls and ring bearers. It was a production on a scale that's usually only seen in the invasion of a small country. And, and all the plans went well until the climactic moment of the processional. See, the bride had been dressed for hours, if not days. And there was no adrenaline left in her body. And she was left alone in the reception hall with her father. While the march of the maidens went on and on and on. She'd walked along the tables that were laden with gourmet goodies and absentmindedly sampled first the pink and yellow and blue mints. She then picked through the silver bowls of nuts that were on each table and ate the pecans. She followed with a cheese ball or two, with some black olives, with a handful of glazed almonds, a little sausage with a frilly toothpick stuck in, a couple of shrimps blackened in bacon, and a cracker piled with liver pâté. Her loving father, in an effort to calm her down, gave her a couple of glasses of champagne. It gets better. What you noticed when the doors of the church opened and the bride was standing in the entrance was not her dress, but her face. 
it was pure white, as in no blood in her face. And what was coming down the aisle was a living grenade with the pin pulled. The bride threw up right as she reached the mother of the bride. And by throw up, I don't mean she did a polite little ladylike erp in her handkerchief. She puked. There's just no nice word for it. She hosed the front of the church, hitting two bridesmaids, the groom, a ring bearer, and the pastor. And the only two people in the entire wedding who were seen smiling were the mother of the groom and the father of the bride. Fulgham explains how they quickly pulled themselves together and had a much quieter, much gentler ceremony in the reception hall and how everyone cried, as they're expected to do at weddings, mostly because the groom held the bride in his arms through the entire ceremony and no groom has ever kissed his bride so tenderly or carefully as that groom did. But the best part of the story is this. Ten years later, they all were invited back for another party to celebrate the disaster that the wedding day was. And they watched the whole thing on three TVs because, of course, the mother of the bride had rented three separate videographers to capture the wedding from their own unique perspective. And the party was thrown by the mother of the bride herself. How do you find joy when everything's gone wrong? They found joy because they knew at the end of the day, the groom came back for his bride. And that was all that mattered. That is all that matters. Paul says, I want to know Jesus. Not just his words on a lifeless page. I want to know Jesus. I want to be dialed in, zeroed in like a newly wed bride and groom so that whatever the world throws at me, good or bad, I can defiantly choose Jesus. I can choose joy. Now, let's be honest. The world can be really hard. And I've never known anybody to get a free pass in this life. I've never known anyone who makes it through life worry-free, trouble-free, adversity you but Jesus promises that in the end we will be okay because at the end of the story Jesus is coming for his bride the church and by his power he will make everything right he will fix our broken bodies and he'll mend our wounded souls and armed with that good news we can like Paul lived every day with unstoppable joy.